Let's pray. Jesus, teach us to remember our baptism in your holy name. Amen. Have you ever known someone who had the gift of silence? Uh, they speak very few words, and when they're done, they're done. Silence hanging in the air. Most of us, by the way, immediately feel the need to fill that silence with noise. Music, TV, lawnmowers, empty words. I had a friend a long time ago who had the gift of silence. You could count the number of words on your fingers and toes and still have toes left over. But he was actually a very skilled communicator. You see, when he stopped using words, silence hanging, he was simply waiting for you to become part of the story. Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism is actually pretty short, 110 words in English, but it's not as short as Mark's version, only 59 words. Matthew also spent two chapters getting us to Jesus' baptism. Mark only took eight verses. See, skips the entire birth narrative. In fact, in Mark's gospel, the first time we know the stories about Jesus is when he gets baptized. Now, whether it's 110 words or 59, like my friend, the gospel writers are expecting you to fill in the silence. Oh, not with your own narrative of what you think happened to Jesus' baptism, but fill it with the history, the prophecy, and the stories that have been handed down to God's people since the Garden of Eden. In other words, by the way, fill it in with your story. The Bible is made up of three individual stories told by around 40 different authors, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The 40 authors produced 66 books, which God then uh, wove into a single book with two parts. Now, by the way, when somebody says, now, I'm a New Testament Christian, take a deep breath and say, are you aware that the Old Testament and New Testament are one story and actually can't be separated? You see, one of the biggest disconnects in the church today is forgetting to tie the two Testaments together. You can't know the whole story without knowing both of them. See, story one is, I'm sending you a Savior because you need it story. In the Old Testament, God promises to send a Savior who will feed the hungry, heal the sick, restore sight to the blind, and love those who the world has abandoned. We heard that in our Old Testament lesson. Obviously, the Savior has awesome power. But as cool as all that is, the Savior's primary purpose is actually to restore God's people. You see, in the I'm sending you a Savior because you need one story, not only does God feed the hungry, heal the sick, restore sight to the blind, and love the unlovable, but God defeats all the evil powers with such dazzling brilliance that with, well, every knee bows and every tongue confesses, and heaven is then filled with all of the holy people of God. Now, except by the time Jesus, the Savior, shows up, the church has put a twist into the story, not one under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And by the time Jesus shows up, they, the Jewish rulers, are going to get to sit on a throne and rule over everyone who isn't as perfect as they are. This is why the disciples kept asking, so Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom of heaven at this time? In other words, can we start picking out our crowns and our throne yet? Because we know how this story is supposed to go. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's gospel, the Savior story reaches its climax when Jesus asks the disciples who people say he is. And they stumble around and then they say, well, you know, here's what we've heard. Uh, Jeremiah, Elijah, John the baptizer, presumably with his head intact. And, but that's, that's when Peter gets all excited and he yells out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he kind of steps back waiting for bonus points. And Jesus says, obviously, my father told you the answer because you aren't that bright. But yes, 
it's true. And they get excited because now that the secret is out, they're going to go straight to Amazon, start picking out their, you know, their robes and their crown and their throne, um, except they don't know the end of the story, the, the, the Savior story, as well as they thought they did. And this is where it helps to know a little bit of biblical history and geography. Way back at the beginning of the Gospels, um, Philip comes and asks his cousin Nathaniel, he says, you got to come and meet this guy named Jesus. He's the one we've been waiting for. And Nathaniel starts to walk and then he says, you know, well, where's he from? And Philip says, he is from Nazareth. And, and that's when Nathaniel just laughs. That's like telling somebody that you are from Paris, Virginia, population 50. Um, and Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip responds rather strangely. He says, come and see. In my favorite movie, The Princess Bride, when Peter Falk, the grandfather, is trying to convince Fred Savage, the grandson, to let him read a book, well, Fred Savage has a lot of hesitation. And then finally, Fred Savage asks, well, has it got any sports in it? And Peter Falk answers, are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, and miracles. And Fred Savage says, well, I'll try to stay awake. When somebody asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Our answer is, are, are you kidding? You gotta come and see. By the way, Paris, Virginia, home to the Ashby Inn, one of the top restaurants and inns on the entire East Coast. You see, sometimes we really can be surprised. Now, just as story one, the I'm gonna send you a savior because you need one story is really starting to gain momentum because Jesus said, yeah, I'm the one you've been waiting for. There's a bit of a detour. You see, instead of him charging off to Jerusalem and taking over the church and the government and setting up his own kingdom, um, Jesus takes a very, very long detour. And story two, the suffering servant story, begins. Now, story two would be a real shocker if you didn't know your Old Testament. The twist is the Savior isn't going to crush his enemies and put all of his friends in charge of the world. No, instead, Jesus is actually going to let his enemies crush him. The Savior is going to be despised, rejected, and acquainted with suffering and sorrow. Now, after Jesus admits that he's the one, he says, well, I got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm actually going to be crucified and, and dead. But then on the third day, I'll rise again. And the same Peter who said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, he responds by telling Jesus he's out of his mind and he needs to stop with all this negative thinking. The Gospels, if anything, are all about the disciples trying to reconcile the first story with the second story because Jesus is always telling both at the same time. None of them can, though. None of them can see how a Savior can do both. They, they can't be the Savior and also suffer. To them, it's an either-or thing. By the way, the first one to really get this, the first one to understand that the two stories are really one story, um, and I'm not even sure that he understood what he was saying, is one of the soldiers who stood at the foot of the cross and presumably was one of the ones who also helped put the nails in Jesus' hands and feet. Um, I, I need to repeat, you know, he's standing there as Jesus breathes his last and died. And now the soldier... Looking up at the very dead, Jesus says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Do you see the irony and yet the brilliant theology? If the crucifixion story isn't enough suffering, read the rest of the Gospels, and you'll see that Isaiah 53 is an accurate 
prophecy. It's as accurate as you can get, which is why a bloody, beaten, and dying Jesus hanging on a Roman cross on a Friday afternoon with people cursing and spitting on him shouldn't surprise you because that's exactly what the Old Testament says the Savior is going to have happened to him. In Princess Bride, when the hero is killed by having his life literally sucked out of him, Miracle Max gives us hope by saying that he is only mostly dead. Unfortunately for us, our hero Jesus is dead dead. And by the way, just to make sure, they took a sword and they ran it up his side right into his lungs and heart uh, so that if he wasn't dead, well, he is now. Now, Jesus being dead seemingly puts a definitive end to both story one and story two. While Jesus being dead is a logical end to the suffering, you know, Jesus story, Jesus being dead in the I'm sending you a savior because you need one really messes with the whole saving you thing, unless you know what a red herring is. This brings us to the third story which is a story that has no beginning and has no end. And when it wraps itself around the first two stories, they come together that, that in a way that could only be the work of God. This is the story of endless glory and love. It's the perfect happily ever after. Story three is about a God who loves his people so much he unlocks the door between death and life, between hell and heaven, between nothing and everything. And God does this through his son, the Savior, who both suffers and saves. Now, whether it's 59 words or 110, they were all very carefully chosen by Matthew and Mark, and they actually speak volumes, not so much in the words, but also in the silence. This is where we see, when we hear the story, John the baptizer standing in the river Jordan. Now, this is the same Jordan River that Joshua, after Moses died, stood on the banks of as he got ready to lead God's people into the promised land, and they had to cross, yeah, the river Jordan. And then there's, of course, God's voice from heaven. This is my son, which, by the way, is straight out of Psalm 2, where God promises to save his people. But here God adds the word, um, whom I love, or beloved. And the only other place that that is used in the Bible is in the story of Abraham, where Abraham sets out to sacrifice his beloved son. The phrase, in you I am well pleased, comes straight out of the suffering servant psalms of Isaiah 52 and 53. And when we hear the Holy Spirit is hovering over Jesus' baptism, we're taken back to the first chapter of Genesis where the Spirit of God broods over the face of the waters as God creates. The silence is deafening, yet it is filled to overflowing with meaning and hope. Now, you've heard me talk about the Hebrew word selah. When we read the Psalms, we're coming along and all of a sudden I seem to like forgot, you know, and lost my place because I'm not saying anything. And then after five or six seconds of silence, I'll say, Selah. Um, Selah means to stop, take a breath, think about what was said. We're always in a hurry to get to the end. And, and so God had David and the other psalmist write this word in there so that we would stop and actually think about what God just said to us. Selah is a silence that allows us to be still and let God be God and fill in the silence with his hope and love and, and allow us, by the way, to become part of the story. The reason we celebrate baptism of our Lord Sunday is because it really is a big deal. When the water flows across your forehead or you flow into the water of a river, a lake, or a pool, something amazing happens. And we all need to be reminded of our baptism because we are a very forgetful people and sometimes the stuff we forget is actually very, very important. Water is recycled endlessly. A drop falls to the ground and becomes part of a puddle or a river or a lake or an ocean where it then evaporates and then starts the whole cycle over again. And so when you were baptized... 
the water, whether it came from a sink, a river, or a frigifator, it may have been part of the Red Sea that Moses parted. Could have been part of the Jordan River that Joshua crossed to take God's people into the Promised Land. Could have been a wave Noah's Ark bounced around on, or the sea where Jonah was dog paddling before the giant fish swallowed him. Could have been some of the water that Jesus turned into wine, or the water that Jesus walked on, or maybe even the water that gushed forth when the spear was thrust through Jesus' heart and lungs. Those drops of water connect you to the everywhere and the every when in the world. It might only be a drop of water, but it soaks you to the very soul with all the love and the mercy and the stories of God. On Reformation Sunday, you hear me talk about Simul Justus et Peccator, simultaneously saint and sinner. It's a theological truth that we are, right now, because we're alive, both sinners and saints. There are a few more dimensions to this truth, though, that we don't always have the time to include. You see, it starts off that we are born separated from God. It's called original sin. Now, this doesn't mean that you're actually doing anything that's sinful. I mean, yeah, babies burp and cry and poop and need to be changed and things like that. But we're not talking about active sin the way that we often think of sin. You see, it just means that our very nature is not in alignment with God. What God wants and what we want, two very different things. The simple term that we use is we're sinners. Now, when we get baptized and the water flows over us or we flow into the water, things change. Now, we're still a sinner. And by the way, anyone who knows us will be happy to testify about that. But what it's really saying is that it's obvious our thoughts, words, and actions and plans are still not totally aligned with or in agreement with God. Oh, we have our moments, but we have those other moments too. But there is a change taking place, and that change is taking place by the power of the Holy Spirit. While we're still sinners, God sees us as saints because He sees us through the saving work of His Son. And we're being transformed from what we were to what we shall be. But in the meantime, God sees us as both. Now on that day when God calls us into His presence forever and heaven becomes our eternal home, we leave the sinner part behind completely and totally, and we are only saints. Story one, story two, and story three. All too often we want to jump to and remain in story three, the glory, the sainthood, the power, the forever, because to be honest, we're tired of story one, where we recognize that we are sinners who need God to send us a savior, that we are sick and need to be healed, that we're forgotten and need to be loved. We want to leave all that behind. We just want to get to the saved and the glorified part. We're also tired of story two, because being reminded that Jesus had to give up heaven and live among us and suffer and die, and that that's the price of our salvation, well, it makes us feel bad. And we just really don't want to feel bad. And here is where I need St. Matthew's longer account of Jesus' baptism instead of St. Mark's shorter version most of the time. Oh, they're both equally accurate, equally perfect. But you see, if I remembered all of my Old Testament, if I looked deep into my soul and knew me for who I really was, a sinner in need of a Savior, then eight verses would be enough before we got to Jesus' baptism. But Matthew's gospel reminds me that we waited for God for generations. And by the way, we're going to wait for generations until Jesus' second coming. Matthew reminds us the birth was not easy for Mary, for Joseph, Elizabeth, Zechariah, for the people of Bethlehem. And Herod, Herod's a prime example of why this world needs a Savior and often what we need to be saved from. 
and even as the water is drying from Jesus' forehead. While we're still eating cake and talking about how a wonderful baptism it was, Jesus heads off into the wilderness to go one-on-one with Satan so that we don't have to. See, I often need the longer version to remind me just how precious my baptism really is. The gospel interweaves all all three stories. The need for a savior story, the suffering servant story, and the God loves us and has a place for us in heaven story into a single story, which is our story. We reach up where the water was once poured and know that even though our forehead has long since dried, God is still working and he's not going to stop until he brings us home. Those drops of water poured on us had been around since the creation of the world. And who knows where they were and what they saw. I have no doubt their stories would be amazing if, if they could tell us. But story three promises even more amazingly that long after those drops of water, which have been around since the beginning of time, when they no longer exist and this world that we're living in is nothing more than a memory, that you and me, we're still going to be alive with God in heaven. In fact, we're going to be more alive than we've ever been because our story is never ending. There is a lot of silence in our world and a lot of silence in our lives. All those silences are God giving us a chance to become part of the story, all of it, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.